Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, we are very happy to share another special crossover episode from our friends at Marijuana Today, starring friend of the podcast, Ben Larson. In this special episode, Ben is joined by Dr. Jahan Marku, founding partner at Marku and Aurora, and cannabis business reporter Jeremy Burke to talk about the recent election fallout for marijuana, some of the ways scientists are researching drug consumption and how the federal government is using their studies, and the lag in New York State and rolling out legal adult use marijuana. So don't sit back, lean forward, and enjoy this special episode of Marijuana Today. Hello, and welcome to episode 383 of Marijuana Today. It's me, Ben Larson, CEO of Vertosa, and your favorite conscious capitalist. We're recording Friday, November 5th, 2021. How you doing, Marijuana Nation? November? When did that happen? Hope you all had a happy and safe Halloween. Uh, You'll be happy to know that I was a responsible adult and ate all my kids' Halloween candy, for fear of someone spiking their chocolate with weed. Yeah, yeah, well, joke's on me. Disappointed to report that I didn't get high at all, but I did get fat, so there's that. (laughs) Uh, Can we please stop trying to spread hysteria about this? It's getting old and worn out. It's just plain wrong. Looking at you, attorneys general in Ohio, New York, Illinois, Connecticut, Arkansas, and probably others. No one wants to give kids free weed. It's a waste. Because we are indeed now in November, not sure if you know this, but but we did have a midterm election this past Tuesday. Did you vote? I'm not so sure you did. But until now, <laughs> the cannabis industry has been on quite the run uh, uh, until this week, uh, where it was decidedly a mixed bag uh, for cannabis businesses across the country, although uh, arguable about how consequential. We'll see. Not related to the recent polls, uh, but we did get a bit more clarity on New York's legalization schedule. Uh, 18 more months, maybe? Safe banking gets a show of support by the very people that Senator Cory Booker is fighting for in his valiant standoff between safe banking access for cannabis companies and the more comprehensive CAOA. And finally, our ongoing discussion around hemp-derived THC isomers. Yay. We'll be talking about all of this and more as we get serious about cannabis business and politics. And by we, I certainly don't mean just me. I'm joined today by two of the brightest minds in the industry and movement. First up, the newsman himself, the arbiter of my favorite newsletter, Insider Cannabis, and senior reporter on Cannabis for Business Insider, Mr. Jeremy Burke. Jeremy, great to have you back. I love the intro as always, Ben. Thank you for having me. and It's good to be here. Man, it is so great to talk to you, and I'm super excited to have you alongside my next guest. Uh, We have the editor-in-chief for the American Journal of Endocannabinoid Medicine. That's a mouthful. He helped create the first product standards for cannabis and hemp products as chairman of the American Herbal Products Association, APA, uh, their cannabis committee, and he's the founding partner of Marku and Aurora, Dr. Jehan Marku. Good to have you back. (laughs) <laughs> Glad to be back. And just, you know, because I am an editor, I have to just nitpick one little thing about my bio. And that was, yes, I was on the subcommittee and everything you said which was true, but I was chair of the laboratory subcommittee, not of the entire standards committee. That was my my colleague, Tim Schmale. But um, I appreciate it. And if Tim doesn't mind, I'll take credit for it. That's totally cool. You should absolutely take credit for it. And I don't know if anyone's going to fact check me. Is anyone listening to this? Let me know. 
rate and review us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Um, all right, gentlemen, thanks for joining me on a Friday afternoon. I really appreciate it. Let's jump right in, shall we? All right. As reported by the good folks over at MJ Biz Daily, this year's off-year election resulted in a number of victories, such as the failure of a new marijuana tax in Colorado, uh, but also some setbacks, mostly instances where voters decided to ban recreational and medical cannabis sales in parts of Michigan, Montana, and Massachusetts. So digging into the details here, nothing far reaching uh, was really on the docket here, uh, to my knowledge, uh, but it does kind of highlight the importance of the hyper local movement that is required in parallel with both the state uh, legalization efforts and of course the federal legalization effort. I do find it interesting that states are both trying to increase tax revenue on one hand while municipalities are banning access uh, on the other. And so it seems like a, a, a tough game that we're playing here. Uh, Jeremy, uh, you're, you're pretty uh, infused into the news. Um, anything you see of significance here or is this just par for the course? You know, I, I think, I don't want to say it's insignificant. I do think we have seen some things that are par for the course, right? Um, when states have legalized cannabis, even in New York and New Jersey, a lot of municipalities elected to not have dispensaries within their city limits, right? And so oftentimes you'll see that municipal politics, there's a divide between uh, what, you know, maybe more conservative, small town elected officials want versus what uh, sometimes more progressive leading state level officials want. So, you know, to me, there's there's no surprise there. That being said, I think Philadelphia shows the entire opposite example, right? Where you have mm. an urban area that's very progressive that voted overwhelmingly in favor of this sort of symbolic measure to legalize cannabis, right? Um, Pennsylvania, you know, there is a lot of movement on that front to legalize cannabis, but um, it's not necessarily clear how it will take shape, whether it will happen next year. But if the voters of Philadelphia are to be listened to and believed, it seems like there is overwhelming support. Um, on that front, the one thing I will add is that I think the Virginia governor's race actually does have a lot of bearing on, on where cannabis is at nationally, right? Because mm -hmm. the uh, Republican governor-elect, Glenn Youngkin, um, you know, he's not a fan of cannabis, right? He, he has come out very vociferously and said that in the past. He thinks that, you know, the revenue that states have generated from cannabis is oversold. He doesn't believe really in, in legalizing as a principle, like many other uh, more conservative-leaning elected officials. That being said, you know, he did vouch to not repeal the bill. He may be a stick in the mud and he may slow things down. But if someone who is so vociferously against cannabis legalization, who you know, using their own words, doesn't see the value of cannabis legalization, will not mm -hmm. repeal it in office and has pledged not to do so. I think, you know, that does show that, uh, you know, how far we've come on legalization, despite these sort of nitpicky municipal votes that uh, came down. What What about the, the, the larger picture of, of, you know, this switch from the Democrat to the Republican in Virginia during the Biden presidency? Is this a, a, a signal for maybe what's to come you know, say next year or, or, or like, is there, is there implications that we should be more concerned about from a, from a bigger picture level here? Yeah. You know, I, I'd be way out over my skis if I would opine on federal politics. Right. Uh, I, I don't want to be, you know, <laughs> I don't want to be in the position of making grand predictions based on, you know, one sort of gubernatorial election in one specific state. That being said, surprising result, right. Um, you know, Jack Chitterelli ran a very close race in New Jersey as well. And so obviously the Republican Party, I think at the state level at least, is much stronger than people expect. Um, mm -hmm. Whether or not you can kind of draw grand patterns to how the country is thinking as a whole or, or the pattern of the country, you know, I'm not sure. I've read some articles that, you know, oftentimes in off-year elections, the president's party does lose a lot of support. And so this could just be a pattern. I don't know. I, I you know, I'd be again, out of my skis by pine too much. But that being said, I think that, uh, you know, the Republicans are for real and they've clearly hit on a message that uh, is working. Yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't push you outside of your comfort zone. Yeah, no, no, I appreciate the question. I, yeah, I'm glad to uh, give my opinion. Yeah. 
I, I, I was excited to see uh, the voters responsibly vote uh, to strike down the increase in, in tax measures for the cannabis industry in, in their state. Um, you know, the Proposition 119 lost 55% to 45%, um, which is just great. I, I You know, I, those can't all be cannabis consumers and those can't all be like, you know, uh, Republicans voting for this. This is just kind of like a, a signal to me that's like, okay, people see the cannabis industry struggling. Hopefully this that's the driver behind this, like that the cannabis industry is struggling, that we shouldn't be trying to tax more of it as we're still trying to figure things out and how to make it work. Um, so that's exciting to see there. Um, kind of off of the election fallout, which, you know, again, you everything was like kind of counties and cities and that kind of stuff that, you know, whether it was Montana, Michigan or Massachusetts that, that I kind of saw. Um, so I want to actually kind of talk about not so much this election cycle related, but like New York's continuing effort in their legalization. And we saw like pretty quick movement uh, to, you know, get home grow like at the top of the conversation to uh, allow flour into the dispensaries. Um, but now we get this very definitive, okay, 18 month timeline, uh, to get the regulations rolled out. And then there was like uncertainty about even when full on retail is going to happen in that, that time frame. So, um, Jayhan, you know, our, our resident New Yorker, um, I mean, we were kind of postulating that it was going to be about 18 months, I feel, but like now that it's definitively not going to be 2022, like how... You know, how's the community out there talking about this now? Um, you know, that's a great question. I think that you're seeing a lot of activity from various committees and groups that are interested in it. Uh, and I hope that during this time we get some sensible regulations in New York. I think it could really help raise the bar for how a program could be rolled out. And um, I think it's sensible at this day and age, like with the restricted... Uh, <laughs> Their, their guidelines for home cultivation, um, I would say that anyone who's worried that that's going to affect their bottom line um, should probably uh, not apply for a license in, in cannabis use if you're going to have to um, compete with local home growers if that's something. So I guess my point about that is saying is I think that there are things here that members of the industry might want to nitpick, but I think that there are larger issues here with New York um, and public health and public safety and again, just getting a functional program up and running as soon as possible. Yeah. Jeremy, uh, on the business side, you know, how are people reacting to this? Like, I mean, is that, is that the long haul that a lot of these, this rush towards New York was anticipating, or is this going to slow down the, <laughs> just the excitement over, over everything? I don't think it'll slow down the excitement, right? I mean, New York is a large, economically powerful state, New York City, center of finance, media, fashion, whatever industries you want. I mean, cannabis companies want to be here. They want access to this consumer base. That being said, I think there is some consternation among how long it's taking to roll out, right? I mean, the original timeline when the, when the MRTA, the, the bill that legalized marijuana in New York passed in March was 18 months from March. Um, now it's looking like 18 months from November. And so that puts us in the middle of 2023, Ben, as you said, just to get the licenses issued, not necessarily to open doors. And so that's a long time, especially when you are a publicly traded company who's dealing with a quarterly earnings cycle, right? That's a long time. Earnings are very, very delayed on, on, on that front. And I think even, even among, you know, consumers like myself, I'm, I'm okay to say that there's, you know, a lot of not, I wouldn't say anger, um, because you can get whatever you need to get here. The illicit market is thriving. Um, but it's like, you just have to get the doors open. I, you know, I think a lot of people appreciate taking the time to do it right. Learning from what States have done with their tax programs, with how they're doling out social equity licenses. So there's a lot of learning that needs to go into this, but there's also a ticking clock to kind of erode the illicit market, get doors open, get revenue generating and, you know, get, tested safe cannabis in the consumer's hands. Um, you know, that being said, I, I had a conversation with um, Tremaine Wright, who is the chair of the Cannabis Control Board. And, you know, she she is very much aware of, of that conversation. And I think that there is pressure from uh, Kathy Hochul, the, the governor who is up for re-election soon to kind of get doors open and show voters that they've done this. But at the same time, 
you know, she is rightfully very concerned with getting the social equity component right because we have seen it sort of bastardized and exploited in other states. Mm -hmm. and, and she really wants to be careful about that. And that is a good goal to have. It's just a matter of balancing that with getting stores open. Yeah, to that end, I, I have heard that they're being very deliberate about the license structure to ensure that it's reinforcing the intent of, you know, these initiatives, right? And so ensuring that, you know, the anti-vertical uh, vertical integration um, that they're trying to structure, like ensuring that brands can't just create like some, you know, other company and have some, you know, reverse way of coming in and, and owning, you know, a, a vertical chain, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, Godspeed. I, I, I can only imagine that actually developing it is challenging and complicated and like it could very well take 18 months just to put that level of uh, deliberate effort into it. There's a lot of stakeholders who have a lot of different competing interests at play here too. Like it, it's not an enviable job to be in. It's easier to report on it than to actually write the policies themselves. So I'm absolutely not criticizing, um, but I do think that that time is of the essence here, especially, you know, if one of the stated goals of the legislation is to capture that tax revenue, that's at least 18 months of uncaptured illicit market tax revenue, right? Um, that's a lot of money that could be used for, for good things for a state that's trying to dig itself out of a pandemic. Very good. All right. Let's put a pin in segment one and kick it over to our producer, Shay Gunther, and one of our sponsors who make this all possible. We're happy to have the support this week of our friends over at Dip Devices, makers of the popular Little Dipper, a mega useful handheld device that lets you sip marijuana concentrates as you would from a straw. The Little Dipper is great for on-the-go concentrates consumption and is priced at just $29.99 retail, despite being packed with features found in models twice that price. If you would like to order your own Little Dipper today, you can swing over to dipdevices.com slash MJ today for a very special offer. And while you're over there, you can also learn more about how you can sell the Little Dipper yourself as a retailer in your own shop or dispensary. If you have your own shop or dispensary and you're not already carrying the Little Dipper, then you are leaving money on the table each and every day that you don't. So don't delay. One more time, just head over to dipdevices.com slash MJ today to get your own Little Dipper and or to become a Little Dipper retailer. Welcome back, everybody. Well, one thing uh, that wasn't voted on this election cycle was safe banking. We've talked about this plenty of times on the show uh, and have offered our opinions on politicians using safe banking as leverage in the broader, more progressive uh, CAOA. But now a group of black small cannabis business owners are pushing back against claims from Senator Cory Booker and, and others, uh, that passing cannabis banking legislation now ahead of justice-focused legalization would only help big operators. Instead, uh, they say current policy has a, has a redlining effect uh, that disproportionately hurts small uh, minority-owned companies while letting large multi-state operators continue to grow. And, and I think we've touched about, about this uh, in the past. So as a reminder, and in case you missed an episode or two and are saying, Wait, I thought we liked Cory Booker. Um, the Democratic senator hailing out of New Jersey was quoted as saying, I will lay myself down to do everything I can to stop an easy banking bill that's going to allow all these corporations to make a lot more money off of this, as opposed to focusing on the restorative justice aspect. And, you know, it softened a little bit, but then people upheld it. And, and, and there's just this general consensus that there's a handful of senators that are going to continue to push hard, regardless of the chances of it passing, to not pass safe banking in an effort to kind of carry the, the full comprehensive bill across. So uh, 
for full context, just real quick, let me quickly define the redlining effect for our listeners, just in case uh, someone's unaware. Redlining, uh, born out of uh, discriminatory home loan criterion, uh, is is the practice of identifying certain neighborhoods or areas at as high credit risk, often on the basis of uh, the race of those who live there. And, and subsequently, uh, denying loan applications from, from credit-worthy borrowers uh, simply because they live in those neighborhoods. Uh, historically, the, the practice of, of redlining was often used to deny minority customers uh, loans and, and housing opportunities. It, it kept those in low-income neighborhoods, often people of color, uh, from gaining property and wealth. And, and which limited upward mobility. Uh, it also kept those neighborhoods from developing economically through denial of loans um, and, you know, to potential business owners in the area. So we can see the direct correlation here, right? The, the large corporations having access to banking, be able to work around this, and then these small businesses being hamstrung to being cash business and being denied banking. Um, so Jeremy... You're having a lot of these conversations. Uh, is Booker backing down yet? Or is there any indication of, well, frankly, are, is there any indication of the tactics actually working in the CAOA gaining traction? Um, or, you know, do we have a chance of seeing the, 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 the safe banking come through? Let me, let me answer the question by kind of giving a lay of the land of the prospects of, of the CAOA, it's a mouthful, the bill that uh, Senator Booker, Schumer, and Wyden want to pass, right? The Senate right now is split 50-50. The vice president has a tie-breaking vote. There is a filibuster rule whereby you need 60 senators to pass something. As, as far as I know, in all the conversations I've had, and again, you know, I'm just one reporter, so I'm willing to be wrong here, there, there is no path for the CAOA to pass with the current composition of the Congress. They, they will not get 10 Republicans, and it's unlikely they're even going to get 50 Democrats on board. Full stop, right? Um, that being said, you know, this is how politics works, right? Whether Booker really believes that he will lay himself down to stop banking pass, I don't know. I'm not in his head, and I couldn't possibly really understand his motivations, but there is a tactical reason why he's saying that, right? Because he thinks that if they move on safe banking, then broader reform will be dead, right? Because even Republicans who are opposed to cannabis legalization will say, okay, this is a banking bill. We're helping small businesses. Like we can get behind this and then be obstinately opposed to broader reform. So I do think there is a tactical reason for him doing that. And again, I, I don't know this. I, I'm just saying what I'm hearing and what I'm thinking. Um, so I want to put up that caveat there. Um, you know, that being said, safe banking does have a lot of support, right? Like, I think it, it, that is a bill that can pass. It is a bill that will absolutely help a lot of small cannabis businesses, not only to have access to banking, but it's things like getting loans to finance the growth of their business, right? Um, you know, you can create a social equity cannabis program that has all the good intentions in the world, but if there's no ability for them to get a loan at a non-usurious rate, uh, how are they going to start their business and how are they going to actually reap that advantage? So um, the Safe Banking Act can be really helpful. I do see the progressive argument, though, about moving on something that will help businesses ahead of things like expungement and reducing incarceration. That is a very good point, and I don't think there's an easy answer there. Um, all that is to say, you know, I, I think the path forward for a broad-scale progressive cannabis reform bill in the current makeup of Congress is really slim. I do think that there is absolutely a path for a narrow banking reform bill. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. CAOA will not pass, says Mr. Well, I'd like to be wrong. I'll say that. I'd like to be wrong. <laughs> no, it's good. It's a little bit of clarity, right? So uh, Representative Ed Perlmutter from Colorado uh, stated that Bottom line, uh, the Safe Banking Act is the best opportunity to enact some type of federal cannabis reform this term. Uh, by including the Safe Banking Act in the final NDA, NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, uh, we can safeguard our financial system, reduce the public safety risk in our communities, and help support veteran and minority-owned businesses now. Uh, he goes on to say that enacting uh, safe banking is just the tip of the iceberg 
and it will help break the the logjam and pave the way for broader comprehensive cannabis reform and create a safer and more equitable industry. And so here he's saying that this is actually the first step and this paves the way. And, and of course he's going to say that. I, I think he wrote it. Uh, the, the safe banking act. So, you know, he's kind of a little self-promotional, which is, you know, fine, but you know, I, I don't disagree with them. Um, you know, I, I guess my, my, my first question, and if you guys don't have the answer that that's totally cool. But, uh, when is the Senate expected to the vote on, on the NDAA? Do we, does anyone know? Yeah, it's yeah, no, no, no. It's 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 not. It doesn't have a date yet, um, but it, it will come up for a vote before the end of this term, and it's something that passes usually without much fanfare, unanimously every single year. Um, so, you know, I don't think there's a date yet. Um, it should be in the next couple of weeks. Okay, I'm Canadian, so so you know, caveat <laughs> that I don't always know the particulars of the U.S. <laughs> uh, Congress, but. Um, uh, it, it does pass every year unanimously without fanfare. Um, it should come up in the next couple of weeks. You know, it, it, it did pass the house already. Um, that being said, you know, I, I, you know, if, if safe banking remains in the Senate version, that's going to be a cudgel whereby people can like Senator Booker, people can sort of hold their votes against it. Um, so that could be a big political fight that sort of goes beyond the boundaries of cannabis and more into like, progressives versus moderates versus conservatives versus libertarians. Um, so, so we'll see what happens there. I, I'm not very confident that it's going to remain in the NDAA. Um, I think it'll get struck down in committee before it actually gets a floor vote again, again, my prediction. <laughs> all right. All right. Two predictions. And also two, just for the record, two claimings of uh, you, you claim both New York and Canada in the same show. <laughs> well, sure. I'm a Canadian New Yorker. I'll say, I'll say that. Very much. <laughs> Originally Canada, now New York. <laughs> right. So, so not just social equity efforts, but um, Jehan, this, I am, can only presume that safe banking would help the research community. Has, has this been a, a topic of conversation? Has it become a talking point at all? Because there is a large, like, effort pushing forward research in the space and it's like it feels like safe banking would help that or is kind of the research community kind of you know it would be i would say that the safe you know banking issues in cannabis affect everyone and i think that there has to be some incremental improvement just so that banks can give out loans for any type of business so i think there's some aspects of passing um, you know, banking changes because again, cannabis policies have evolved over time. I think there are benefits to passing it for everyone, like banks not being, um, you know, liable or, or able to be charged for money laundering charges for giving a loan to a cannabis company. Or, you know, I'm not a lawyer or, or you know, a money laundering expert. But I think that that's a big aspect to what's happening here. I mean, like, look at some other states, uh, flyover states in the U.S., people operating legal cannabis companies had to lie or be disingenuous about what their business was and now are facing money laundering charges for a state-licensed business because they can't use a federal bank. Uh, the research world, very real. I, uh, for, uh, you know, I was presenting virtually at the uh, Institute of Cannabis Research in Pueblo, Colorado. I believe it's a federally and, and state-funded research uh, institute. And I was going uh, registering because I was invited to present some data uh, that I had gathered with colleagues about um, you know, FDA-reported adverse events. And my bank account actually was closed because when I purchased my ticket for the research conference, it said, oh, you're doing cannabis-related activity. Uh, you know, we can't, we don't work with you. So I had to get a new bank account all of a sudden. So again, it affects everybody. You don't even have to be touching cannabis um, to have it affect you. You just have to have that transaction line in your bank account, something that says canna something, that means that they're going to can your account. So um, this is this is a constant issue, not just for people who are distributing cannabis. And then you think about venture capitalism. What do you do with the money that you just fundraise to cultivate, process, and distribute a Schedule One drug? Um, you know, <laughs> I think that there are a lot of issues here that just allow, uh, without having banking access, I don't know how people, it, it, it is, it is admirable to me how anyone is able to start and maintain a cannabis company <laughs> without having access to, to banking services. Or if you do, you're paying such high fees that you have to be a giant company 
because of the costs of doing business. And let's not even forget that, you know, businesses still can't write, you know, the 1080E issue because of the federal illegality. It's not like you can write off uh, things you would normally write off for a business. And on top of that, there's taxes. You know, I think that aspects of banking reform need to happen for cannabis just to keep it healthy. Because without the ability to take loans, do investment, do R&D, do fundraising more seamlessly and with more than just a you know 100 or so credit unions, uh, it, that's where R&D is going to grow. And, and we need this information. And you know what? Most of the companies are outside the U.S. that are going to be doing this research again. Like the U.S. academic research centers are doing great, but we still live in a world where they can't get products into their labs. They have to import them from Canada or from other countries where it's legal. So I, I think that there's a number of issues that banking could help clarify. And I think um, just, I, I really hope that there's able to find some common ground between the social justice measures to uh, that address the war on drugs, including expungement and things like that. And, uh, you know, can't they just paperclip these two things together? Like everyone's record are expunged and you can use a bank. Um, I think that's a good compromise or at least like, I don't know, turn on the faucet a little bit and let there be some banking services, like at least get banks off the hook um, because everybody's going to need a place to run payroll, to brand their business. Is everyone going to pay their employees in cash? Is that what we want to, is that how we're going to grow small businesses, keep them cash oriented? Um, I think that that's not a great way to do it in this day and age. And I think that allowing access to banks will provide potentially more stability for small businesses. But I guess, yeah, we have to do this in the right way, um, uh, you know, um, and, and I don't think it would only help big operators. I think it will really help a lot of the ancillary services. I think it will help all the non-cannabis touching things, like the patient services, um, third-party services for the industry. I think that all these things that dispensaries can't do, you know, uh, other groups can do that don't directly touch cannabis. And I think that that would bring more resources to bear for the industry, more organizations could come and offer their support and services. Imagine, you know, if, if groups that aren't touching cannabis because this federally status could come in and start working with you, like standards groups, in ingredient suppliers, uh, third-party research centers. I mean, the, the list goes on with, um, you know, once the faucet's turned on and money can kind of flow without worrying about money laundering charges or accounts getting shut down for any reason. I think that could truly change the industry for everyone. Yeah. Just you mentioned third party services, just like anything, something as simple as advertising on Facebook, right? Like that would change the game for a lot of people. I think you mean advertise on Meta. <laughs> I think Meta owns Facebook. I, I did I open I my Instagram app and it said Meta. I was like, oh, wow, that was quick. I don't want to get all Meta about this, but I, I don't even know what to call it anymore. <laughs> oh, man. Um yeah, it's 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 kind of wild. I, I I don't know, as Jeremy pointed out, I don't know if it's going to survive as a writer on the National Defense Authorization Act, but um, hopefully it does get pushed through soon. It seems like it has to. Like there's 38 legal states, and the IRS is begging for it because they just want to take their money. And it's like, who else do we need to have on board to like get safe banking pushed through? Yeah, I, you know, I, I do think there is an inevitability aspect to this. Um, and, you know, I think Jehan brought up a really good point is that, you know, it, it, the Safe Banking Act will help small players more than it will help big players, right? The big players have already are well capitalized. They're making enough money to pay down, you know, whatever interest rate they need to pay down. They have the connections, um, oftentimes, you know, even in the personal network to the executives, like they, they have access to capital they're not hurting for this. It's, it's small businesses that this will help. Um, and that's something that both parties really can get behind, right? It's like helping mm -hmm. small businesses, Republicans like that, Democrats like that. And so um, I do think there's an inevitability aspect to this. That being said, you know, I do expect that, you know, I, I don't want to sort of cast stones or throw stones on either side here, but, but, you know, there is a lot of very vocal progressives who, just do not like a whiff of anything business oriented or banking oriented advancing ahead of expungement, right? Or legalization, right? And so um, I do think that the conversation around this is still going to get tied up in that. 
they have a very good point. You know, again, I don't want to cast stones, but at the same time, it's like, it's not the green thumb industries and the cure leaves and the canopy growth of the world. The safe bacon is helping. It's the dispensary down the street. And I think that's a really crucial part of the messaging that, uh, sometimes gets lost. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's gotta happen. Let's get it yeah. done, people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I would agree with that, Jeremy, because if you can like fund your own bridge loan for your company, you're not worried about like banking, you know. But if you if you if you need to bridge a loan to expand your business or to make payroll or, or to do whatever meet whatever civil code that just got passed uh, one year to the next, as these regulations seem to change every year, yeah, I think you're right. The suspensory down the street. Um, is going to be a lot of, I think a lot of pressure would be relieved and they might even be able to like the money that they would save from having access to banking services, I think allows them to hire more people, train their employees better, improve services, product offerings. I mean, their, their positive impact in the community, I think would potentially be realized from being able to manage their money and not paying all these ridiculous banking fees or not even having access to a bank and all the issues that creates. Yeah. Here, here. I, I agree with everything. <laughs> <laughs> Give me banking. Yeah. Okay, Shay. Go get me banking. No. <laughs> Let's hear about one of our amazing sponsors that keep us in your ears every week. Shay? We're very thankful to have the support of our friends over at Hedgerow Analysis. If your legal marijuana company needs location-specific data-centered projections to help you plan and grow your business, look no further than Hedgerow Analysis. They have all kinds of fancy computer models backed up by smart blocks of relevant data to help you work out things like where the best place to build your dispensary would be. Or maybe you need help citing a distribution network to ensure maximum profitability for a delivery service. Whatever your location-based strategic problems are, it's likely that Hedgerow Analysis can help you solve them. Pop over to hedgerowanalysis.com to learn more about the company's capabilities and to get in touch. That's hedgerowanalysis.com. third and final segment. Last week, I was losing my mind a little bit over the latest hemp-derived THC isomer that claims to be three times more potent uh, than THC, but admitted to not knowing much about it. Uh, so so first off, I acknowledge I, I, I'm being a little bit like a dog with a bone on, on this topic, uh, but I do feel so strongly that, that it needs to be talked about and frankly, taken care of. So it'll probably be a standing topic until like we actually have some action. Uh, but now I, I've 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 had not only have I had a week uh, to research it, but I also brought in the person I trust most to talk about such things. So we're going to talk about it again. <laughs> so uh, so THCO acetate is a prodrug, uh, which means it doesn't become active until after it's metabolized by the liver, uh, but at which point it does, it becomes three times more potent than, than THC. And again, it's, it's, it's being derived, and I don't know exactly how, though I have some notes here, from CBD or hemp, and so it is attempting to be sold in the mainstream markets or over the internet, and it just sounds like, okay, I, I mean, I was concerned when we were at Delta 8. Then we had Delta 9, and I kind of like freaked out a little bit because that's direct competition with what we're doing in the regulated market. And now we have something that's not even being sold in the regulated market, but it's three times as strong as what you might find in the regulated market. And we're calling it, quote unquote, legal. Um, Jahan, let's before we get emotional about things, <laughs> w 
what have I not said about THCO? Like what, what is THCO? Um, well, I, you know, I think what we call it and what's actually in these products could be two different things, but, um, you know, basically THC acetate is, um, one of those THC isomers, um, that the DEA probably first encountered in the seventies, I think like 1978, it was when it, um, was put on their radar. It is a class A substance in the UK and it has, uh, just like THC five, a five carbon tail. And so a lot of things with five carbon tails are considered THC isomer and automatically schedule one drugs. THCV does not have a, t- a five carbon tail. Uh, CBD uh, as well. So, you know, I think that, and we have to look at isomers of THC. Um, and if we're trying to figure out if they're legal, I'd like to do the tail test. And if it has like five carbons, it's, it's usually considered a schedule one drug. So uh, another thing too, I think about is that, yes, if it's a pro drug, then the acetate leaves um, and is ingested by your body. Now, you know, our body does use acetate, uh, breaks down, uses it for things, but we have to think about, uh, do we want a bunch of ketone bodies floating around in our lungs after we smoke some of this? So um, it's, it's kind of like, you know, THC, oh my God, I can't believe you put this in your body because um, it was actually originally studied in arsenal experiments as a, a chemical agent to incapacitate people and was known for its toxic effects in dogs, giving them ataxia where they had involuntary muscle control. So I, if you're tired of like boring, safe, standardized herbal preparations of cannabis with THC, which has been studied for decades, you could use this substance that we know nothing about, but it has been successfully weaponized in experiments. So, uh, you know, I guess I don't know what to say. I feel like uh, well, there's one part of me that it's kind of getting frustrated. It's like, well, this is just evolution. Um, and another part of this, you know, natural selection. Um, and another part of me is like, I feel like there's this tendency in the, the, the rogues in this industry to go out there and say, we know absolutely nothing about this. Let's ramp production up sky high to amounts people have never had and tell them it's good for them and just give it to them at a cheap price. And, and then there's these public health issues that happen. They happen so frequently and so quickly that most organizations can't even respond to them. We're still mopping up the mess from Delta 8. You know, adverse events reports are still piling up. Communities are trying to ban or figure it out. And that's one less molecule that is going to stigmatize it. You know, it, it's going to make it hard to access for research, hard to access for legitimate companies to use. Um, and maybe THCO acetate in the proper setting and proper administration form could be great for something, but we may never know it because now it's, um, they're just trying to get around the laws. And I, I think that it is, I think it is um, a considered an analog of THC. Uh, so I don't think it, it really fits in this legal definition. Um, so again, not much is really known about it. Uh, very little about toxicology. Again, um, I had to access a toxicology report from the National Academies of Sciences and Engineering, which was about the long-term and short-term exposure to chemical agents, um, and it, it discussed THC acetate. And again, there are a lot of safety concerns around this compound because we just don't know much about it. Um, and I think people people are selling it right now, and you know, none of this stuff is hard to do. It's not hard to make it, but it's hard to make it in a purified form. And people are probably going to go on. Alibaba or whatever the heck they're using, whatever the kids are using these days to order their impure, low quality standard chemicals, whatever's cheapest. And they're going to go, then they're going to make like, they're going to take garbage. And then what's going to come out is going to be garbage. And it's going to be highly impure and, and non-standardized, just like we see with Delta 8, where you get these products and you look at the certificate analysis and say, well, of this thing that says it's all Delta 8, it's only 60% Delta 8. And what's this other stuff? And um, I just, we're going to see you know, either there's going to be a blanket ban or I don't think regulators are really up for an arms race. I think they're, they don't want to see a designer drugs arm race. They're just, we might get flat out bans or repercussions, or people might start voting to not let any cannabis sales in their neighborhood because jerks are out there skirting the laws and regulations that companies are trying to stay competitive in. We talk about banking issues. Now you have people who don't need a license who are selling things that mimic your product. It's like, why are you drinking milk from the grocery store? I got milk acetate here. Why don't you drink this? It's a buck cheaper. You know, it's like, well, why don't you just go to the grocery store and get something that's been tested, pasteurized, standardized? You know what's in it. You know what you're getting. 
Um, and, and I think like at the same time, I'm like, great. Now we have this other isomer that people are looking at getting. I just spent most of yesterday trying to understand what canaflavin A is, a flavonoid on cannabis. I'm like, this is something that hasn't even been studied yet. It's naturally occurring on the plant. What about CBG? Someone right now tell me how CBG works. Yeah, that's what I thought. No one knows how it works. It's on the plant. We have varieties of it, and you're already off synthesizing stuff that we even know less about than how cannabigerol works in, in the human body. What's it good for? Can someone tell me what the safe limit of inhalation for cannabigerol is? No? Oh, well, well how come you're off like making new cannabinoids to, to just like test on the public unknowingly? And so I feel like um, there needs to be more knowledge put out there to help people make decisions. And again, I... I just, like, we live in, in, in kind of a great time. Like, you asked me 20 years ago, <laughs> I, would, I would have never thought there would be so many states with safe cannabis available in a variety of forms, um, as well as reciprocity for, for medical patients in some states. It's not perfect, but, you know, there, we are seeing product diversity continue. We're seeing access laws change. And, and again, we're just starting to, the first ever patient-reported survey about cannabigerol was just published this year. We are just starting to understand the natural products, right? Just starting. And, and so I have to say, big caution, big red flag to any of these synthetic isomers. It's, it's really a roll of the dice. We have no idea what the long-term effects is. And I don't remember the last time a therapeutic safe agent was developed out of, you know, chemical agent testing for warfare. Uh, but, you know, it's that's not my idea of a good time, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, with, with this one in particular, right, because it's got that, it, I, from what I read, it's, it has a delayed onset because it has to go through this metabolization process. So it's it's like a 20-minute onset where even if you're vaping it. And, and so there's a high potential for overconsumption, like the the old edibles, right, that where everyone has their kind of edible story where they, they didn't think it was working, so they take more and all of a sudden they're bombed. But this has like psychedelic like effects and and can and uh, allegedly can cause seizures, right? And so the, those health risks and and kind of the reporting is 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 very yeah, concerning. Yeah, and we have and we don't even have a good reporting system for for this stuff. I mean, each state has their own sort of poison control number, so it's very hard to to collect uh, this type of data. And I'm you know my colleagues and I have been working on these types of projects. And it's, it's very frustrating. Even the FDA has put out um, information about the need to do this and understand all these packaged goods and, and things like that. And, you know, we're, we're relying on anecdotal reports for, for THCO acetate. And it's kind of frightening. Like we're not, we're not looking at work that has published significant scrutiny. I mean, I don't generally like to base my health advice on things that were published 50 or 60 years ago in a one-off study, you know, like, uh, like we see for some cannabinoids, we definitely need new, new data, new studies done in a modern context. So, um, yeah, I, I think like it would be great to say consumers need to weigh the risks and benefits for the compounds themselves, but we don't know what those are in any way. So it's like, like the risks could be really, really bad. You could have a, 50% more chance of developing some, I don't know, a rash or having an adverse event than not using that compound. But we don't know what the risks are. So, I mean, I guess just, just walk around blindfolded and if you hit something, oh, well, I don't know what the heck. Well, it's, it's, it's an unfortunate <laughs> situation. Yeah. Hell, I mean, health risks aside, we do know some of the risks, right? Like, so the, the kind of ad hoc general reporting system has become Reddit, which we just read in the news that the FDA is going to be using Reddit. <laughs> it's like, it's like, so, yeah, uh, social media is a totally acceptable uh, way to do research and look at outcome data. There's actually been standards set up for like Twitter and Instagram because people post, I mean, uh, that's where I learned about why I was, I was reading these reports years ago about all these weird dabbing related injuries. And you go, and then I saw the researchers were doing work on Instagram and it's true. You can see people like, doing, you know, dab challenges and, and ingesting dabs in, in dangerous ways. And you're like, okay, that's why their entire nose and throat and ears are, are burned from using um, these products. So I think sometimes people can look at unsafe practices. They can look at how people respond to information, respond to research studies, who's talking about studies and whether or not they're accurate. 
Um, and I think that that's always kind of fascinated me is, is when we develop some of these, we get some of these coined terms and these sort of viral uh, quotes about research studies. I mean, how much harm are those actually doing once they get in our head and influence how we think about these issues? Because again, you know, it's, it's probably not the researchers who are talking about the research online. Uh, and, and I think what's great about social media, again, is it allows you to look at people experiment with things, people report on it. I think that's the interesting thing is, is when someone posts this product, someone says, oh, I tried it and I had this effect. Or, you know, and so I think that that's an interesting thing is when, you know, I've seen oh, this happens all the time. Something comes out about a cannabis survey and people are like, cannabis treats endometriosis. And then you go look at the study and it's actually was just a survey and people who have endometriosis check a box that say they've used cannabis once ever in their life. And it seems like a, it seems like a bit of a, a, a questionable association there to make such a huge leap that cannabis treats endometriosis when people just in a survey who have endometriosis say they use it. And again, I'm just saying like that's one way to look at how information is being disseminated and, and, and communicated. But again, you also have health outcomes research and they do it for other fields. Um, for mental health is a big thing, how people respond. Uh, they looked at things like uh, election and discussions about cannabis use in one paper and saw that like the number of people talking about how they were going to get high increased during the last election, like right before election night. Um, so there's been all, you know, there's, there's a lot of fun things you can get from it, but I, I just want to say it, it does sound a little weird, but it's a totally valid way of doing research. And, and you can look it up on like PubMed. There, there are standards for doing social media research. I, I love it. I've been trying to get people interested in it for years. You can do your own study. Uh, on cannabis and social media. You just need a few hundred tweets to go through and you can publish a paper. People have done it. So again, free data is out there on social media about cannabis. You could become a researcher right after listening to this. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. Um, so I did receive a text after the last episode that was like kind of coming in defense of some of these operators and be like, well, it's, it's the system and they're just trying to survive. And I'm like, uh, that's horse shit. And like, here's why. Uh, but like, Jeremy, like, what are you seeing? Like, you interacting with a lot of these business leaders, probably most of them stand up and like really just sticking to the regulated framework. But like, is this starting to impact business from your perspective? Yeah, no, I I will say I I had um, I had some flashbacks to uh, PTSD. Adult flashbacks to AG, AP chemistry, listening to Jayhan talk. But that was uh, that was a fascinating. Uh, it, was, it was fascinating. I mean, it's not my expertise, so I I, I just wanted to say it's really really interesting to hear that. I was thinking about like polymers and all the stuff that made me realize why I became a reporter, and not a scientist. <laughs> um, but uh, no, but to answer your question, I mean, I. I think there's two things, right? I think like when you look at some of the recent bans, like the, the Delta eight ban in Texas, in New York, I think um, I don't envy the regulators position, right? Like this is a game of whack-a-mole. Uh, it's a gray area, right? And, and as long as it's hard to operate a legitimate business, you will have people who are pushing the boundaries as much as possible. So I don't, I don't envy the regulators position. That being said, you know, I think it's pretty clear who is operating responsibly and who is not. I think, you know, some of the vape issues are really present in the forefront of people who are bringing, you know, products into the public sphere, right? Like that kind of thing, this, this whole area is ripe for people to get sick from products. Some of the things that Jayhan was talking about, about THCO, I mean, that sounds terrifying. Um, so I do think that there is a huge sort of communication gap. There's a discord. A lot of the leaders I talk to, like some are like, no, we got to survive. Like Ben, the text you got and other ones are saying like, I would never touch this stuff. Um, and so it's pretty clear who you should be consuming from, uh, if that, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. My, my, my biggest fear actually is that we don't nip THCO and it's other analogs like in the bud right now, because I also just read about THCP, uh, which I don't know if it's been commercialized yet, but apparently it's 30 times more potent uh, than Delta 9. And so if, if we don't stop 3x, then we're going to go 30x and it, it's going to be uh, it's going to be a big problem. To your point, I think more accurately, who says that's better? You know, we have evidence from animal studies and, and even some human studies that more potent compounds doesn't mean better. 
uh, you can go from euphoric to dysphoric from having a partial agonist to a full agonist. So, you know, full blast cannabinoid receptors. I mean, do you want to be like full blast, hungry, like sleepy, sedated, forgetful? Like, I mean, you know, you're going to have all this memory regulation, mood regulation, like turned on full blast and the most abundant signaling system in your body and your brain. Like, Maybe not. Maybe THC's partial agonism is one of the reasons. It's not a full agonist. It doesn't hit the receptor at 100% capacity. Maybe that's why it has such great therapeutic utility. And many of these synthetic drugs developed over the last decades that are really potent at the receptor never really left the lab. I mean, think about it. All these pharmaceutical companies have had cannabinoid programs in one stage or another. You know, there have been... Uh, before the first cannabis law passed, you know, like Marinol and other compounds were developed in the U.S. and abroad. And, and I think we have to keep that in mind is that these are these are like research tools. These are like hammers and we're using the hammers. Uh, you know, these are these are meant as research tools to help us understand biology, not necessarily to be commercialized. Um, or, you know, and I, and I think that we have to think about that. And and just because we don't know anything about something doesn't mean it's safe. You know, there's an old saying, I guess, um, is that <laughs> when uh, when ignorance is bliss, it's a folly to be wise. Uh, and so that's a phrase I often think about is, you know, <laughs> but I don't, I, I, you know, I would hesitate anyone to think like what you don't know can't hurt you. Uh, I just think it's like we... You know, this has been this has been an issue all over the place with designer drugs, and and what are people actually getting in these products? It might say, oh, I made THCO acetate. Really, well, how much of other stuff is in there, and how does it react with THC and other cannabinoids? Um, you know, I've read stuff about how CBG can counteract the anti-nausea effects of CBD, um, and and things like that. So we there are interesting reactions between cannabinoids. So. Again, this isn't just about taking a single agent compound and what happens. We have to think about they're taking in a shotgun of other compounds and, and other factors. And I think I just, I just wish we had more basic information about these compounds to make us feel better. And, and again, like we said, we don't know which one might be the next blockbuster medical treatment approved by the FDA with proper studies or which next one will be the next public health crisis that we're all banging our heads on a wall saying, great, now the regulated industry has to do with something that's in a gray area um, and, and get, you know. So again, I just like to see more education and, and again, research on this stuff. We need to understand these things more. And before we start thinking like, oh yeah, let's just, turn our receptors on full blast like that's not uh that's not really a medical strategy most of the time i mean we if you completely block cannabinoid receptors like people don't do well that's why remote event was put off the market but if you partially modulate them to be less active like cbd does you get like benefits so again i think we have to get off this idea of just more efficient interaction more potent receptor or action means it's somehow better. Fair, fair. Well, shit. <laughs> As I mentioned last week in, in this show, the FDA will be searching Reddit to learn about the effects of CBD and emerging cannabinoids. So uh, they're going to then find this mysterious Delta 10 and Delta, or I mean, TACO, and they're going to freak out. And then they're going to come down like a ton of bricks. And the question is on, on who and how far reaching and how irrationally. Uh, and I suppose we're just going to get to find out. <laughs> not to be doomsday, but um, yeah. Once again, I'm just going to say it. Knock it off, please. And feel free to text me. I haven't gotten a death threat yet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that wraps up our third and final segment. We'll be back on that one. We're going to take one more quick break to hear from Shay and one of our sponsors who makes all of this possible. And when we return, finishing moves. This week, we're glad to have the support of our friends over at The Atlantic Farms of Portland, Maine, which is known around town for their unique medical marijuana dispensary slash gas station. 
where you can fuel up on all the things you need to get down life's road. Pop over to theatlanticfarms.com today to browse their extensive menu of top-notch Maine marijuana products, all available at hugely affordable prices. That's theatlanticfarms.com. If you do stop in, tell them I said hello. Welcome back, folks. Now it's time for my favorite part of the show, Finishing Moves. Finishing Moves. Finishing Moves is the part of our show where our illustrious guests can talk about anything they wish. Uh, So, Mr. Burke, I'm going to let you go first. Uh, What's on your mind today? Yeah, sure. So this is this is a question I get a lot. Um, this is not going to be the most exciting finishing move, but um, a lot of people ask me how to best get press for their company or for something they're doing. I would say this: um, you know, any reporter, especially reporters that cover cannabis, will get a lot of pitches and a lot of stuff thrown at them. So I think that's a bad route. The best route is to kind of provide some value to me or to whatever reporter you want to write about, and then start the relationship that way. So maybe it's a piece of information or a piece of insight uh, that you have that you think I would be interested in. I'd rather hear about that than to hop on a call with a uh, PR person who is just sort of telling me about why the company is so great. I should write about it. So just something to think about. Um, I hope any of you who are listening to this, I I love to meet people and I love to cover companies, but um, try and make it a two-way street, right? I'm not just uh, uh, an automated bot that writes a ton of stories every single day. Um, I have interests. And so try and figure out what I'm writing about and how to fit in and how you can offer some value to me and then build the relationship up, excuse me, relationship up that way. Um, so I would appreciate that. And to all the listeners who want press, that's the best way to uh, go about doing it. Yeah. Awesome advice. Uh, <laughs> I remember telling telling a, a lot of startups in their early days, especially when running the incubator. I'm like, the the fact that you exist is not newsworthy. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, there are there there are many of you, and frankly, you don't really exist yet. So, like, you know, come up with something more interesting than that. Make make it newsworthy. Um, yeah, great point, great advice, Jayhan. What do you got? I think for my my finishing move, I'm going to give a small plug to the FDA. And they have some really cool resources because they're revamping how they're approaching cannabis and hemp right now. And they have uh, videos on their website like Cannabis Clinical Research, Drug Master Files and Quality Considerations, teaching you about how to navigate the system and what information might help you... um, support cannabis research while protecting proprietary information. And so um, if you're growing cannabis, if you're developing products, you're researching in this space, um, I think this is a great page. You can find it um, at the FDA page. If you just search again, um, clinical can- a cannabis clinical research drug master files and quality considerations, um, they have a small business and industry assessment thing for people looking to develop legitimate cannabis products. And you can learn about what the FDA actually does, because I think uh, a lot of people seem to have a misconception about what the FDA's role is in product safety, especially with cannabis and hemp. So again. I found the video, even though it's a year old, I was like, wow, I didn't even know this trove of other videos existed. So check out some of the FDA's cannabis webcasts and videos that they're putting out. It's really exciting, I think, can give you some insight to the future directions of, of product approval. Wow, that, that's amazing. I'm passing that to my team right now. <laughs> I'm like, you, you have weekend homework. <laughs> they're going to they're love you for that. Um, yeah, no, that, that's fantastic. It is kind of... We have probably at least one conversation a week with our R&D team where we're like, you know, postulating and trying to predict, you know, how are we going to engage with the FDA? And, you know, it's as as kind of 
a relatively young company still, you know, there's always the kind of like financial implication of dealing with the FDA that we're also trying to wrangle. It's like, how engaged do we want to be all that kind of stuff? So yeah, anything that kind of foretells that is, is super valuable. Um, awesome. Thank you. Two valuable finishing moves from our guests. This is awesome. Um, as for me this week, uh, just a tidbit of timely business advice. This one in regards to supply chain management with respect to the current conditions. While most of the world is concerned about running out of toilet paper or, or, or paying more than they think they should on a used car, business owners are, are currently struggling or likely soon to be due to supply chain shortages and or prohibitively long lead times. While the initial impact may have been caused by the pandemic and the clog up in the Suez Canal, we, we, we can't expect things to go back to normal or get caught up simply because restrictions are being lifted. Uh, consumption patterns have forever changed. On-demand shipping uh, to consumers quickly became the norm in this time period instead of a premium convenience. And, and now we're trained. That's just our habits now. This is straining the infrastructure that was built under an old paradigm where you had centralized distribution through, through big box stores and, and is requiring a dramatic shift to catch up. Uh, this will be a long lasting and, and we need to adapt to survive uh, as businesses. Quick anecdote. Uh, my mom is in the custom framing business. It's never happened before, uh, but they've run out of the wood that to make the frames and, and they can't do really anything to expedite the next shipment. So now they're in this situation where there's plenty of demand. In fact, more than ever, people are doing home improvements and decorating their homes because they're spending more time at home, but no supply. It almost happened uh, with my own business. A key ingredient that we source from a U.S. manufacturer turns out that that supplier uh, sources this key ingredient from overseas because it's not grown or, or made in the U.S. We ordered back in May uh, with the expectation that it would arrive in June, and we just received it here in the beginning of November. I was sweating uh, because we had a decent amount of stock, but I never anticipated having to go that long uh, without a top-off. We've now increased our stock holdings and, and have built redundancy into every part of our business and supply chain. And I encourage you, business owners, to do the same. Know where everything is being sourced from and, and where your sources are sourcing from. Take a little bit of time each day to identify potential single points of failure. Don't take anything for granted. As a growing business, not being able to serve demand not only stifles growth, but it could potentially break the trust of your customers. And that's this week's finishing moves. How about a round of applause for our amazing guests, Dr. Jehan Marku of Marku and Aurora and Jeremy Burke of Business Insider. Thank you guys so much. Thank you to Shay and the team for their production work that makes us all sound so darn good and Overclock Remix for the amazing tunes. Thank you to all of our sponsors for their generosity in keeping our mics and lights on. And of course, thank you, our awesome listeners. Please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes so that other cannabis nerds can tune in and stay current on the latest industry news. Most importantly, Marijuana Nation, take care of yourselves take care of each other. I hope you enjoy this episode of Marijuana Today and that you have an incredible marijuana tomorrow. One take, Shay. One take.